The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. So who's prepared to admit that they are still a Tory? After a crazy 2022 with three Prime Ministers, four Chancellors of the Exchequer, an economy on the floor, breakdowns in public services and our politics an international joke, is the party over for the Tories? With 13 years in government, many of their own supporters are saying it's time for a spell in opposition. But is the Tory problem worse than that? The polls suggest a wipeout at the next election and other data suggests their support base is dying off and not being replaced. It used to be that young people moved right as they matured, but not anymore. So is UK politics moving into a new phase? Is what's been Europe's most successful political organisation now headed for the scrap heap? The why? Curve. So the interesting thing is, you know, here we are saying that the Tories face a wipeout, they're going to be years in the wilderness, but that is exactly what everyone was saying about the Labour Party, wasn't it? it After is. Corbyn, you know, they weren't going to recover. Yeah. And here we are, from one election to the next. And the Tories have been here before, because if you think of what happened after the, the Blair election, you know, obviously they had a long period of lots of leaders, not much prospects. But what I'm reading is different to that. That's what makes it so interesting, because you're seeing a situation in which it looks like the Tory party as it is can't survive mm. um, and we've seen this in other places I mean in, in Canada famously the Conservative Party they were completely wiped out right. uh, in an election so is that just because it's the wrong message or is it because it's the wrong leader or are, are they I, I think it is a lot deeper than that I think what it's to do with is that they have that the core values that they've been building themselves around and they're, they're incredibly cl- clever the Tories at reshaping themselves mm. uh, every, every so often every generation and they haven't really done it for this generation and there's a generation out there that well, are going to be with voters. Brexit, of course. I well, mean, they completely got themselves behind Brexit. And maybe the problem now is that people, I mean, I'm not a Brexiteer, so it's easy, no. very easy for me. You know, just in case that didn't come across. But, uh, you know, I think there's increasingly there's not many Brexiteers left because I, I suspect they are dying a, off. a lot of people. Are, well, they are dying off, first of all, but also those, those who've survived mm. are looking and going, well, actually, this isn't uh, doing what it said on the tin. But also, predominantly, they were of an older age group. And that, mm. that goes. And I mean, and the values around which that was based are not in tune with the coming generation in, in, in a very clear way. And, and what people always said in the past, yeah, 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 but the, you know, the young idealists become the, the older middle-aged conservatives, just yeah. the way it always works. Yeah. Latest data, and we're going to hear about this, I think, are not suggesting that's going on because perhaps younger people now don't have a stake uh, in the economy in the way they used to. They don't have a house, many of them. They don't have uh, the kind of material things that push people towards wanting They've to defend them. less, yeah, that the Tories were there to protect. Exactly. Like, for, yeah, if you're exactly. wealthy, we'll look after your money for you. Yeah, yeah and yeah. as you get old, in theory, you get all these things, but they're not. Yeah, and I wonder also, because I mean, we are seeing more volatility as well, so, I mean, the, that idea that you vote like mum and dad used to vote, thats uh, I wonder if that's going by the wayside as well, perhaps for that very same reason, because we are seeing this volatility, these huge swings, so that the Conservatives have slipped from nudging over 50%. Uh, down to 26% in the latest opinion polls. Labour's gone from 25% up to 46%. In fact, you know, they peaked over 50 when Liz Truss was the was Prime Minister. They're all over the place. Yeah, and, and I think the Liz Truss moment, and mm. it was only a moment, uh, was, was absolutely key because it just sort of said, these people have nothing. There is nothing there. Mm. The, the, the ideas they're coming up with are so thin mm. um, that, that the markets don't buy them, even their own supporters don't buy them. This is a party that's exhausted 
elected uh, by 13 years in government. But but as I say, there may be more to it than that, in which case we may be moving into a new politics. And I mean, you know, I'd be very rich if I had a pound for every time people have said that over the years. But maybe this is a fundamental change, uh, a reshaping and, and perhaps politics, not so much about the workers and the and the bosses and the old politics that shaped our, our, our political history, but more of environmental issues, perhaps uh, mm. different sorts of economic issues, different social issues. I mean, young people's concerns are well, more that on the sounds very progressive, doesn't it? That sounds very far away from, you know, the traditional Tory base, but also just the talent of our politicians. I mean, look at what we had, Boris. Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak. I mean, he's not getting any traction, any more traction with the public than than Boris did in in his yeah. uh, later years. So I'm skeptical. I have to say, about I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. I, they're not an impressive bunch, but no. I, I'm so old I can remember when even less impressive politicians. Less impressive. Yeah, but here we are. Michael but, Howard, anyone? Well, okay, but here we are. We're facing this massive uh, uncertainty of the future. We have a lot of people struggling to get by, and here yeah. we have a prime minister who's worth an absolute mozza, doesn't have any working class friends, mm. and his wife's a billionaire. Yes. Uh, how is he going to guide us to all homeless this? people if they're in business? Uh, well, no, that was that was a bit of a twist, actually. It wasn't quite as it appeared to be, but uh, it was embarrassing. Well, let's dig into this and hmm. find out, get a sense of what the data is suggesting. We're joined now by Paul Whiteley, who's Emeritus Professor at the Department of Government at the University of Essex, and he joins us so now. So, Paul, I mean, your belief, as I understand it, is if, if you look beyond the volatility that we have going from one election to another, which are often driven by events, aren't they, like Brexit, for example, uh, there is a long-term trend uh, and I would have thought that long-term trend, I mean, I could be wrong on this, would be to the right, uh, which is why we've had so few years of, of Labour government. But maybe not. I mean, you, you reckon actually it's bad news long-term for the Tories. Uh, yes, that's right. I mean, I suppose the starting point of all this is to recognise that the main thing that influences elections is government performance. And uh, that mainly focuses on delivering on the economy, but also on the other public services such as the NHS and so on. Now, this can be disturbed by surprising events and certainly Brexit. The Brexit vote in 2016 was a big shock and, of course, set off a whole series of uh, events that put British politics into turmoil and and produced uh, very volatile polling. And that's been made uh, more apparent uh, due to Liz Truss's um, short sojourn in, in, the, in number 10. Well, I mean, it's been a disaster of leadership, hasn't it, really, fundamentally? Yes. yes. But, but it's, yes. it's all a lot deeper than that, isn't it? Because I mean, looking at the data that you've it's, come up with, it suggests something rather more fundamental is mm. going on. What's happening is, in a nutshell, is class politics, which was the basis of British politics in the early post-war period, has now been replaced largely by age politics. Um, huge age divides now exist in the electorate, and they're accompanied also by educational divides. So young, well-educated university people are much more likely to be Labour than they are Conservative. And as a consequence, um, there's a long-run trend suggesting that conservative support is actually weakening um, and dying out. The relationship between age and voting is a bit more complicated than just the old argument that um, 
as people get older, they get more conservative. That's what the um, sociologists call a life cycle effect. Uh, you know, um, as you get older, you get a mortgage, you get a job, you get a partner, yeah. you get children, you have to pay taxes much more than... Um, and and you want to potato all those things. So, Roger actually unusually made quite a good point just before we started talking <laughs> to you, which was that, you know, a lot of people now don't have those things. So, <laughs> so you know, whereas they might have turned to the Conservative government to, you know, help them keep their house, a lot of people are struggling to get one even even later in life. So, uh, And, Paul, there was some interesting stuff, data came out in the Financial Times fairly recently on both sides of the Atlantic suggesting that that drift to the right isn't happening. Yes, that's true. That's true. And... Uh, Part of the reason is that conservatism is challenged by populism. Um, You know, speaking of United States politics, um, Trump is not a a conservative. He's a populist and actually a radical populist. So it's splitting the Republican Party, as we can see with the goings-on in Congress recently. And a similar process is at work in Britain, although it's much more muted, conservatives were divided um, between UKIP and conservative support. And in fact, UKIP won the um, 2000, the last European elections before the 2019 ones, which were in 2014, and uh, took a lot of conservative support. But they were able to unify it again in 2019 under Boris Johnson, who brought them together and so did very well. But the potential split between populist right and conservatism is is still there. But Boris Johnson wasn't a conservative in any true sense either, was he? I mean, Brexit, you know, was all about uh, breaking down free trade. In effect, we had a free trade agreement with with Europe. That doesn't seem getting rid of that and going to a more protectionist future doesn't sound like a conservative approach. And then Boris wasn't afraid to spend money either. He was hardly a fiscal conservative. That's right. And one of the arguments amongst uh, some conservative MPs in Parliament is that their leaders recently have not been proper conservatives. So it indicates that issue um, is live. But um, to come back to this issue of youth politics replacing uh, class politics, um, you can see this in a very recent um, poll. Polls coming out all the time, of course. But... um, If you look at a recent Delta poll, this was conducted on December 9th, a couple of days ago, actually. So it's right up to date. Um, People's voting intentions were 45% opted for Labour, 31% opted for the Conservatives. So Labour has, a, in that particular poll, a lead of 14%. And in other polls, it's, it's even a bit bigger. Um, However, the Labour lead among millennials, the youngsters, um, in that poll was 41%, not 14%, 41%. Labour was getting 59% of their vote um, and the Conservatives 18%. Whereas among baby boomers, you know, the post-war generation, the lead of Labour was 6%. So there's a big age difference in Massive. The voting intentions. But again, the suggestion, I mean, we take on board that perhaps people aren't going right, drifting right as they get older as much as they did, but there will be an element of that. So in the end, if the Conservatives are playing, if the Conservative populists are playing to the older 
people, then then they'll be fine because the ones who tie off will be replaced. But, but we're saying though, aren't we, that that right doesn't necessarily well, exist; that the, it's been replaced by populism. Yeah, that's a that that's a, a, a fair point, but it ignores something that's rather important. When you're looking at the age between voting and when you look at the relationship between age and voting, you have to take into account what are called cohort effects. Life cycle effects are the ones you're talking about. As you get older, you change. But cohort effects are different. Um, Cohort effects are political effects that people learn when they come of age politically. You imagine um, a youngster up to about the age of 15 probably doesn't pay attention much to politics at all. Maybe one or two do, but most of them don't. Um, But when they reach 15 or thereabouts, um, they start to pay attention to politics and they start to listen about it. And over a 10-year period up to about the age of 25, they acquire political identities. Not all of them do, but that's how it works. Now, we know from uh, a good deal of research that these political identities, when acquired by the age of the mid-20s, tend to be long-lasting. They don't change as you get older. So if you're, so to speak, as the sociologists say, socialized into being labor, or indeed socialized into being conservative during that formative period, you're going to stay that way uh, well into the future. Now, it turns out that some modeling we've been doing, and it will actually appear in our new book, which is coming out this year on Brexit Britain, um, shows the conservatives have really lost huge numbers of supporters among the millennial cohort um, compared with the past. They were able to renew themselves, which they had a party organization that socialized youngsters in families into the Conservative Party and that a youth movement and so on that was quite influential. Now that's gone. And so they're increasingly reliant on uh, an aging cohorts. And the thing about aging cohorts is eventually they drop off the end. Yeah, they die. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, like perhaps the Conservative Party. So well, let's so get much, on to that. <laughs> so, so how much of, the, how much of that, uh, that trend to, for younger people to, to move away from the Tories is driven by Brexit? The fact that, you know, there's a, a whole load of people there who previously could go and work in Europe and travel easily in Europe. And now all that's been taken away from them. I imagine that is quite a divisive factor, particularly amongst young people. Yes, you're right. But there's other things, too, which we've, you know, touched on. Job insecurity, house prices, they can't get on the housing ladder, so they have to stay with mum and dad. Debt, they leave university um, with Mm. a lot of debt and worry about paying for it. And if you look at the policies that uh, the Conservative, but certainly Labour too, in the past, They've uh, looked after the uh, pensioners much more than the millennials, you know, with the triple lock pension system, um, which has been in place for some time and so on. And they look after them because, of course, 
many of them vote Conservative. But, but they die, and eventually... But they die. That's so how, much, how much of this is a worldwide trend, then? Because, we've, I mean, we've got Biden in the United States, Bolsonaro's gone in Brazil, in, in Australia, uh, Scott Morrison's been dumped, uh, we've got... Uh, OK, we've got Georgia, Maloney in Italy and Sweden swung a bit to the right as well, so there are exceptions. But generally, it seems like the pendulum has swung around the world to more progressive governments, and we're, we're just hanging out for the next election so we can join them. Well, possibly, yes. Um, but populism has been a really important force, and it's made, uh, looking across the democratic world, it's made uh, some um, parties that were considered way beyond the fringe into uh, members of governments. National Front in um, France is an example. You know, it was uh, absolute fringe right-wing party uh, many years ago, and now it's buying for uh, governance. Um, and did they have well changed their name, the National Rally now, I think. Uh, yeah. They call themselves National Rally, National I think. Rally, I think part of the right. thing is he's changing, name, changing the name actually is part of it in a way, yes. isn't it? And Trumpism is still a major force in the United States, although it's on the way. Um, so I agree that um, populism is in retreat in some respects, but in other areas, and you mentioned Maloney in Italy, um, then it's still alive and kicking and could... Uh, could return, but Paul, isn't isn't that the point that that we've been talking about at the drift because of people who are uh, university age people, people having university loans to pay off and wanting to travel? All this but we're talking about a political class there, the middle class. What about the vast majority of working class youngsters who probably would flock more to a populist banner? Isn't that really the future for the Conservatives? Well, they they tune we, into that. And how much of the red wall was the was the youth vote? I imagine quite a bit of that was uh, was was young people Must as well, wasn't it? Uh, mostly it was elderly people who were Brexiters um, in the Red Wall. But, you know, come back to the uh, Delta Poll uh, survey we were discussing a minute ago. Um, it, it, all, it shows that 90% of Labour voters who voted Labour in 2019 plan to vote Labour again. Um, compared with only 74% of people who voted Conservative planning to vote Conservative again currently. Now, if you look at, at social class, 41% of middle-class voters, uh, that's defined by a market research scale, um, you know, professionals and managers and so on, plan to support Labour. 34% plan to support the Tories. Among the working class... Um, the so-called C2s, Ds and Es, 52% plan to vote Labour and 27% vote Conservatives. So a lot of that working class support that existed in the Red Wall in 2019 is gone. Right. So the populist sure, message... It's all about performance. Pop yeah, yeah, because you know. nothing was delivered for them. Absolutely. Yeah, so if you, if you put right. all of these numbers together then, so you've got these trends, which are, you know, part of it is demographics, part of it is age, and then you've got, you know, the uh, the, the, the polls showing, you know, intentions to vote and, and how much is the welded-on Tory vote versus the welded-on uh, Labour vote. We, 
we should be able to uh, and okay we've seen a lot of volatility around obviously which is driven as you say by performance uh, and personalities and events like brexit but we should be able to to map a fairly accurate direction of travel shouldn't we which i think is you know the, the sort of modeling you've been doing isn't it that's right um but to do this you have to look over a long period of time in the short run over a year or two lots of volatility but I've been looking at polls back to 1943, um, monthly polls, and there's hundreds of these. And when you look at it over the long run, what happens is a lot of the volatility tends to average out. Uh, okay, there's volatility, but in, there's a, a long-term trend, so to speak. Um, and it turns out that... Um, Last month's voting intentions in polls turn out, turns out to be a very strong predictor of this month's voting intentions. A lot of stability and inertia in the system. And you can take advantage of that inertia by forecasting ahead um, a year or so, a year, 18 months thereabouts, and seeing what that produces. And in that particular conversation piece, I did that. Um, using poll data back to the 1940s. And it showed the Conservatives at that point are likely to get less than 200 seats in a general election, which takes place next year. So that, that would be an interesting, obviously, less than 200 seats is bad. It's not existential, though, is it? Or, or is it? Are we, uh, or would we then actually see a moment where perhaps politics might change and the Tories get worse and worse and worse and disappear? Well, it's possible. But remember, the Conservatives did very badly uh, in 1997 when Tony Blair was elected. And yeah. Labour at that time had a massive majority in the House of Commons of 200-odd seats. So they came back. Yeah. So right. um, you can't rule parties out. Well, only but if they change, only if they, they change the focus, because from what you're saying, the way politics is moving, it suggests there simply won't be a constituency for the Tories for in the near future because the, the people they rely on simply won't be there. Well, I think it depends on two things. Um, one is the main thing is whether... The incumbent party, whether it's Conservative or Labour, is seen to be delivering what people want. And actually what people want is pretty simple. You know, they decent public services. Uh, they don't want inflation. They certainly don't want rising unemployment. And uh, they want prosperity and growth, these kinds of things. And if the incumbent is not delivering that, um, then it gets into trouble very rapidly. We saw, for instance, in 2008, when there was the great uh, financial crash and followed by the recession, which lasted for several years, uh, Gordon Brown was in Downing Street and, of course, lost the 2010 election. Um, now, the Conservatives have been unfortunate in being in office when we've got these triple whammies of, uh, you know, the war, the pandemic and Brexit. And they're suffering as a result of that experience. Doesn't mean in the long run they couldn't reinvent themselves and come back. They've done that in the past. Um, but it does mean that right now they do face a pretty big um, mountain to climb to win the next election. And it doesn't look at all like they're going to do that unless something, another earthquake happens and... Mm. 
you know, Labour really messes up or something like that happens. Which is never impossible. Some some black swan event which makes us all feel like we've got to stick with uh, with what we know, that sort of thing. But look, you you, you mentioned uh, the the article in the conversation because we haven't actually referred to that. If you go to the conversation.com and look for the article with the very uh, nifty headline, 70 years of data suggest the Conservatives (laughs) will suffer a big defeat at the next election. Here's how I worked it out. Uh, In in, in that article, you've got, uh, your model has the Conservatives holding about 260 at the next election, which is the lowest since Tony Blair was returned in 2001. It's pretty much where it was when Blair was elected the the first time around. This is a massive swing. Yes, it is. But we're in a a period of very unusual, massive events. Mm. As I say, a triple whammy. Uh, Brexit, as we know, proved to be a source of great turmoil. But in addition... We've got the war and the effects on the supply chains and the economy that's that's produced. (laughs) And, of course, the pandemic, which uh, is still with us in the background after all, you know. Yeah. Uh, as we know, um, so well, the numbers of excess deaths we saw this week, the number of excess deaths last year was was, was still ten percent higher than it was before. Well, a the general year before. sense that what the administration is not administering as it should is, it's is what not comes performing. Out. And yeah. if you were to rerun history, and uh, Labour was in power now, having faced these, it would be in the same position. Yeah, yeah. because but, it's all about delivering, really. But is it not more than that, Paul? Because, I mean, we, we talked about the ways in which people's uh, outlooks are changing, perhaps younger people not having the same kind of inherited concerns that their predecessors had, which is what might be damaging conservatism, but also other subjects. I mean, we talked about things like the pandemic and, and Brexit, but what about environmentalism? That's very high up the list of a lot of younger people's concerns. And is the whole shape of politics going to change on that basis? And yeah, perhaps this- the old worker... Uh, boss thing that was before is gone but something entirely new coming yeah there's this performance thing which i stress is the most important but there's also another dimension to this which is what you might call political values and beliefs and they are very different among young millennials compared with older people they tend to be much more pro-immigration for instance millennials compared with uh, the pensioners um they tend to have less traditional values. They're more relaxed about, uh, you know, LBGT rights and so on. And uh, they tended, as I think you mentioned earlier, to be quite strongly remain when it came to the, uh, the uh, referendum. So there's a big difference in values brought about by social change over time alongside this performance thing, which... Um, is weakening the Conservatives because apart from LBGT rights, which they've actually promoted, um, you know, they're still hung up on this issue of immigration, which um, becomes a serious issue to their older supporters in the Red Wall, but is not a serious issue on the same scale to youngsters and millennials in the rest of the country. And that's why you've seen, despite the fact that, you know, in 2019, Labour did take a real pasting in the election. We know that. But it also won some seats which had been hitherto uh, conservative. Um, it won it, it won a seat in Putney. It almost won a seat in Kensington and Chelsea. 
mm. which it had earlier in 2017 won. It mm. won a seat in the South. Uh, it yeah, won Canterbury, yeah. I think, was, was one of yeah, the ones. Canterbury, exactly. So you, you were seeing um, a weakening of the blue wall, which tended to be overshadowed by the tremendous effect of the red walls seats falling. So, so the, I've, asked this, I've asked this question. I've asked this question before on this in this podcast, and mm. it seems like the time to ask it now. Why on earth wouldn't the Labour Party then be there saying Brexit was a mistake? We're going to reverse it in whatever way is going to be palatable. We are going to allow more immigration to uh, to help the economy grow. Why wouldn't they just be going after those uh, those Tories who uh, who are happy with with immigration and uh, you know and maybe lose some of the the older Labour voters? Hmm. But you're saying the whole politics is shifting yeah, anyway. Yeah, on the maths so, you you base, then then that would be the obvious thing for Starmer to do, wouldn't it? Well, bear in mind that one of the most successful slogans politically. Uh, that uh, Boris Johnson came up with in 2019 was get Brexit done. Mm. So there was a fatigue. People were fed up of the rowing and the arguing. They wanted it done, whether you were uh, a Brexiter or a Remainer, an awful lot of people wanted it done. And so the problem for Starmer is if he reopens the whole thing, you're going to see a, a repeat of turmoil and a lot of people might just be put off on the grounds that um, that they may have been a Remainer, but they just don't want to go through this again. Now, well, it's you can just say you'll do it quickly. Just to the, 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 yeah. the tagline, obviously, is get Brexit undone. And undone as quickly as possible. If mm. it means that you're promising people yet more turmoil, and after mm. all, you know, after the 2016 Brexit referendum, there was turmoil in 2017 and 19. And, oh, you know, we really went through the ringer. And people don't want that. So mm. what he's doing, I think, is saying, look, we're going to try and work closer with the EU. We're going to try and uh, perhaps join an association which Macron has talked about of mm. EU and non-EU um, countries. But we're not going to open the issue again because yeah. that will set off um a red light that says, oh, no, we don't want to go through that yeah. again. And so we're giving, enough, giving back control, enough, I can imagine, being the, uh, yeah. being an issue. In, interestingly what, enough, the Scots have the same problem. Yeah, They're pushing hard for a referendum, but the Scots, uh, you know, the SNP, that is, the government, but the Scots have the same, oh, my goodness, we don't want to go through this again. Yeah. Um, and it's a barrier to the SNP getting what it wants. Even we reflected on that on, on a recent podcast on exactly that point, yeah, in fact. exactly. So when you've been through the ringer, which we have, a triple whammy, you don't want to carry on going through the rim. Uh, no, but you want, uh, but you want things to start heading back in the right direction again, yes, though, don't you? So yes. that gets back to the question of whose who, who's, uh, hands is the economy best placed in? And, I mean, there's two very fundamental approaches to that. One is that you take almost like the Margaret Thatcher approach, that if you've got high debt, we've got to get that down and we've got to take that fiscal conservative approach. So we're starting uh, to rebuild from a, from, a, from a position of strength, would be the argument, versus those people who say, well, no, if we want to have growth, we've got to invest in that growth and if that means more government spending so be it we uh, you know we can we'll cope with that down the track we've just got to get more money circulating in the economy more money into people's pockets so we, we get the economy growing they're two fundamental differences one is pretty much fiscal conservatism the other one is uh, a more labor oriented approach yes that's certainly true 
But it's generally regarded now. There's been a lot of research in economics on uh, austerity, a number of books and so on. Austerity is a very bad idea. It damages technology, innovation, and so on. So I well, think God, we're doing. I mean, the, all the numbers speak for themselves on that, don't they? Yes. Yeah. Uh, David Cameron and George Osborne uh, set off a period of austerity after they won the 2010 election. And frankly, it was a mistake. It weakened the economy. Um, if you want growth, you have to invest both in the public sector and in the private sector. And there is a feeling amongst, I think, some conservatives in parliament on the right that only the private sector produces prosperity and growth and somehow the public sector is just a burden uh, because you have to pay taxes. And this is all wrong. Um, the evidence, uh, and there's a lot of it now, shows that essentially if you want growth, you've got to invest both in the private sector and the public sector. And, and in the and long this... run, countries that grow well do both. And this actually brings us back to something more fundamental, Paul, in, in, interesting historically in terms of the difference between Labour and the Tories, which is Labour seen as the party of state, state enterprise, state investment, and the Tories seen as the party of private enterprise. So is that not something that will continue? There will be younger people who want to be in business and want business to be unshackled. There will be younger people who also want to have good schools, good hospitals, and all the rest of it. And that difference is going to remain. I do, yeah, because imagine there's a lot of young people who are still saying, yes, I prefer small government yeah oh yes but um less of them you've got to bear in mind that um when it comes to <clears throat> prosperity what happens at the governmental level and the international level uh, macroeconomics as they call it is very important so it's not just what individuals are thinking about um, there is some good evidence suggesting, you know, we've taken a hit on trade as a result of Brexit. Um, and there's an argument about how big it is. But these are macro level kind of things that the individuals can't really directly, um, can't really directly affect. But they create a climate in which people are enterprising and go for it and want to see an opportunity and start a business and so on. And if you create austerity where cuts are, you know, occurring and you can't get an appointment in uh, with your doctor and, uh, you know, the public services are not working, then it actually, I think, um, can weaken the so-called animal spirits. This is a phrase that Lord Keynes, the great economist, used, animal spirits. The idea of, you know, being optimistic, going for it, it really inhibits that. And so I think um, <clears throat> excessive austerity in order to balance the books, it's very much an old Victorian idea, and it turns out it's not a good idea. At yeah, the same yeah. time, of course, you can't just spend anything you like. Exactly. There's got to be controls in the bill. But it sounds like. But if you go for, oh, we must have a balanced budget, that's actually likely to do much more damage to the economy than um, and being sensible in your finances. 
look at the history of the United States and look how many years they've actually managed to balance their budget. Mm. And it's, it's, you know, <laughs> debt's just been growing for, you know, they seem to be yeah. doing all right out of it. So just finally then, I mean, what is the, I mean, it sounds like, you know, from your research, unless there's a, a sudden rebranding of the of the Conservative Party before the next election, I suspect that's too big an exercise before then. They have, they are going to face a trouncing at the next election. But yeah. what, what do they do then? Because there's going to be a lot of soul searching. What is their unique selling proposition? Yeah, well, based How, on your 70 years of evidence, where do they need to go? to survive because it sounds like it sounds like everything you're talking about is sort of moving more towards the the, the sort of uh, politics that labor is supporting how do they find how do they etch out an area which is going to be their own space defeat gives a party a chance to reconsider what it's doing and revise uh and bring in new ideas and there are some conservatives in the house of commons although they wouldn't say this uh publicly that think a period of opposition might be a very good thing. It's yeah. a time to look again. But what do they do? Um, Where do they go when they're in that? What, what would what you do- advise them, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, in the past, they've had a reputation for economic competence much more than Labour has. But the way things have gone, especially with Liz Trust, they've lost that now. So they've got to work on policies that allow them to regain that sense of economic effectiveness. Um, and it's going to take quite a while to do it. Um, some of your um, listeners will have remembered that after John Major won the 1992 election, Britain had an economic crisis. It was thrown out of the emerging European monetary system. That was the predecessor of the Eurozone. Um, They tried to stay in that, but were thrown out. And there was a big economic crisis occurring in September of that election year after they'd won the election. And they didn't regain their their reputation for uh, economic competence until David Cameron came along more than 10 years later. So you can lose this very quickly, but you really need to rebuild it. And a period of opposition in which they're rethinking policies and it's worth asking these days, what is conservatism? Well, you know, what exactly is it? And it's not social conservatism won't help them, will it? Uh, not of the traditional kind, because as I say, the people who hold these views are unfortunately, for, from an electoral point of view, dying out. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, you can get ahead of the curve. I thought that David Cameron's uh, adoption of uh, very you know, very positive attitudes to gays was a very good move from his point of view. Deeply controversial inside the party. Yeah, the Conservative Party used to be very anti-gay, you know, really. Mm -hmm. And they moved in a new direction and therefore um, that helped them, I think. So they can Mm -hmm. do it, but they need to have a period in opposition where they can sit down uh, write uh, philosophical tomes, write policy documents and think about where to go from here because they are challenged by these populists um, in the same way that uh, in the past Labour was challenged by, you know, the far left. Yeah. Um, so they've got a. it might be a 
positive thing if they're out of office for a few years to mm. rethink things and then take it from there. Well, it's certainly not a left-right world that we're heading into, is it? There'll be some form of uh, other division. I'm not, I'm not, yeah. It sounds like you're not quite certain, and no one just no one is quite certain is. what that division is going to be. Well done, by the way, for finding uh, <laughs> a, a, some positive that came out of uh, uh, you know out of that government that uh, delivered Brexit to us. Oh, yes, yeah, uh, <laughs> bit of a struggle, but yes. Um, Paul, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Really good to to hear from you. And uh, yeah, interesting to see what the year, the year and 18 months, next two years to the next election but will 200 bring. 200 seats, you reckon, at the next election. Mm. That's well, we'll, we'll come back to you. Okay. <laughs> good to talk. Bye now. Yeah. So really, uh, well, uh, food for thought, I think, if you're a Tory. <laughs> and, yeah, well, I mean, it, it does sound like, the, you know, the, the, it's, the, the future is already determined, you know, mm. that, uh, that they have to find another way yeah. to start thinking about it now. But, yeah, I am just curious about where politics is going. I mean, it, I well, hope that populism is dead. Uh, it feels that, 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 that would, direction. That but, a very bad chapter. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Too, well, I mean, part of the, uh, the return to the past, which is what Paul was suggesting in some ways, going back to the kind of late 90s mm. Tory party in opposition of course is that was the period where particularly trade unions now um, I can see the segue coming yeah well it's, it's, it's an obvious I am one. watching an expert at yeah, work we here we can do it we can do it segways <laughs> are us um, actually those funny little things used to drive around were called segways weren't they do you remember anyway they were out of fashion but yeah. so were trade unions for a long time yeah um, but not anymore so not we, well I, we are now in a period where union leaders not quite beer and sandwiches at number 10 but we're back to a point where well, they are in the news during the Thatcher era of course they were very much the enemy you yeah. know, if you yeah, were yeah. a minor, you might support Arthur Scargill. But if you weren't, then he was the devil incarnate, yeah, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah. Whereas now it seems like we've got some, you know, everyone is facing problems with the cost of living. And, you but, know, so we understand. Yes, the unions uh, are not unpopular. No. I mean, uh, how, can we, how can we be there clapping nurses one year well, during the pandemic and then the next year yeah. saying, no, you can't get a pay increase? And so. you've got uh, some fairly uh, ca- charismatic figures out there, trade mm. union leaders uh, on all the talk shows. So what we're going to look at is... Modern trade unions. unions. Um, Is it all back on? Are we back to the point of mass trade unions representing people and actually getting somewhere in terms of their negotiations? And is it a good thing or a bad thing? We'll We'll look at all of that next week on The Y Curve. Good to talk, and we'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening. The Y Curve.